Chapter 4, Liberation This morning at dawn I woke from a dream, perhaps in some way the dream I have been waiting for, the one I have time and time again. I was headed for the mountain to ski, so many times almost there, but then I forget my gloves. And if not my gloves, then the next dream I forget my boots. And if not them, it's my poles or even my skis that I can't find. But not this dream, this time. I am on the mountain. I am skiing with everything I need, including a partner, actually a community. And then ahead of me, with no warning really or even preparation, I see a ski jump. And without hesitation, even though I have never been on one in my life, I just cruise up to it and then take off, leaning over my ski tips like I have seen the pros do. I am airborne, flying, and it is beautiful. Body, mind, heart, and spirit aligned. I land in good form and wake up. Pretty soon, after my immediate feelings of celebration and joy, I take it in as a sign. My writing for now is coming to an end, as the feeling of liberation is very real. Though all stories have not nor will ever be told, this seems a good time to tie up loose ends, as I am in a state of liberation. I can only hope some shared feelings of co-liberation have been experienced within the community of listeners. I am writing this high up in the Inyo Mountains, here again the same spot over so many years I have come. I'll not belittle or threaten it by sharing the location, by saying its forest service name. The Numu call these mountains dwelling place of great spirit, and so it is. The trees, Junipers, pine, insects, land, rocks, and sky speak to me as they always have. Only now there's hardly any snow in the Sierras to be seen. A haze, a layer of smoke fills the deepest valley in the continental U.S. below, my eyes crying off and on from the slow burn. Fires are active in California, and Oregon as well from where we just returned has the largest fire in the country. And I, sleeping, I can't get the previous days in Oregon out of my head and heart. We drove through Klamath Falls as I was called to stop there because of the river story I knew some about. For years, the tribes had been fighting with others to have those dams removed. And now that was going to happen. And now as well, There was a drought on top of that, and the federal government, as I mentioned earlier, had cut off the water to the farmers and ranchers. And so I return again to the story of that day, as it came throughout my night. When we arrived in the early evening, I went out to look and find a spot near the water, near where the falls used to be, near to the lake. I searched for a quiet place to show up over Zoom on the following morning, solstice, 
a conversation I was to have with Orland Bishop for Walking Water. Klamath Falls seemed the right place to stop for such on a five-day drive home from the Northwest. Follow the water. The water story had taken us on this route. Less direct, perhaps, for hours to travel, yet more direct, songline. We drove the day before in the morning after the call by the canal control gates, the huge tent covered with American flags and signs, demanding liberation of yet another kind, the waters, the right to water. As when our walk with water in California, it was important for me to listen to any and all of the stories. I listened to the injustice story felt by the families who had been farming there their whole lives. Once again, there was the hatred and disgust with the cause of Native Americans' fishing rights. That understanding of what those rights meant to their culture, their life, was somehow not translated, not understood or respected. And yet the farmers were sharing such similar feelings about their way of life being ruined. I found myself in another moment of finding out, yes, it's rarely black and white, good and evil, right and wrong. The injustices have been passed down since the first wounding of land, water, and people. And there seems no going back and hardly a clear way forward. There's not enough water here for everyone. Farms will fail. The lakes are failing, and many people on all sides will suffer. And the wars, they are likely to continue, as they have since the settlers came. As we drive out of town the next day, I see a small fire up in the hills. There's an apocalyptic feeling in the air there, and I'm mostly in the grief no prayer in action arrives in my sleeping or waking dream. This is no place I ever want to be or I ever want to come again. And yet I know the story is not one I can escape. It is the story of our time. And no matter where we are, it is with us. Hours of silence in the car later, we arrive in Reno now to search for a hotel, just to spend the night and keep our doctor's appointments the following day. I once again head for the water, the river, and there, Wynne and I settle on a room for the night. In the morning, he brings me over to the window to see the water, to hopefully together lift our spirits, and instead, we become shocked voyeurs. There, on the far river bank, is a man fucking a woman from behind. At first, I am shocked, locked in, thinking, asking, wondering if a rape is happening, not only in front of us, but in the clear view of any looking out of a hundred hotel room windows. The man and woman continue, and I stay watching long enough to know this is not a rape, but actually some kind of love story I have to suspect and even begin to accept. There behind a tree, 
hidden from the walkway, feeling safe perhaps, or simply not caring. It seems pretty clear they live on the river as so many other homeless now do in Reno. This is their place, their home. And it's not long before I begin to feel, actually, I am the intruder. I stay watching long enough to know that there is nothing to be done, stopped, or expressed. I come to even take it all in as another story, perhaps, of liberation. If this is our world, if this is the only home and water that they can find, making love there, no matter who sees, is perhaps all that's left to be done. Maybe not the romantic love story you or I hope to read, but there it is. A week after arriving home to Three Creeks, we got a call. Another fire had started in Oregon, not far from the small one we saw, not far from Klamath Falls. It has burned most everything of our dear friend's ranch, another water walker, Mark Valens. He had years before told me the first stories of the fight over the Klamath. As a lawyer, he had worked for years to bring the parties together, to build alignment amongst the many to remove the dam. And now they would be coming down from all we've heard, and I can only imagine some kind of celebration, liberation that Mark must be feeling. And so close to that, the loss of what else he had worked to create over 40 years, his entire ranch, lost now to the fire. Here at sunset, I sit in the glow of a red sky, painful beauty, a kind of apocalyptic fire sky of Oregon, California, Nevada, interdependent, beyond boundaries or state borders. Mark will be okay. He has internal strength and resources, financial as well as emotional, even, I would say, spiritual, having fasted here in the high desert as well as faced cancer. The grief? The grief still I can only imagine as he walks amongst the shards in ruin. Many we know will not be so okay. And this story, too, we cannot drive away from. So here now I ask myself, what are the stories to share? What are the ones to be left behind, even liberated from? I'll not tell the story, the love story of Wynne and I coming together, or the time we almost came apart. That will come again around a campfire someday, or remain with those who have heard it, more than once probably. I will not share the story of an unplanned, unexpected initiation experience in the Australian outback, but leave it as a reminder that such rites of passage continue throughout a lifetime. And I'll not share the dream I had of a golden Buddha child I somehow gave birth to, as I am still trying to live into the interpretation of that 
in so many mysteries. What comes to share is my attempt to complete just a bit of the stories I have already started here. To let you know that Joe and Rosie did get released back to the wild, and their liberation is still in the hearts and minds of many today. When we opened the gates of their home-built halfway house in the marshy waterways of Georgia, they swam right out, right away. Then they turned and came back in the pen, nuzzled Gay and I at the entrance, three times. The third time, they headed out to sea. Over the next year, they were sighted nine times, mostly by local shrimpers noticing the freeze brands on their dorsal fins. None of us ever saw them again, even though we had that longing. We took down the pen, freed the waterway it was in, and freed ourselves from continued responsibility. Co-liberation. A year in the wild seemed better than many more they might have had in captivity. That just might have been my first identified experience of so-called co-liberation, a feeling that arrives where both parties truly enter love, soul line, song line. No words I know seem to really speak to such. Another story to be revisited is the one of Peter in the legend. He'll be 80 in a few days, July 23rd, when our planet is closest to the star Sirius. No mistake, the legend covered a lot about our connection to that star. And it is on that day, Aristotle says, the dolphins returned to Sirius from whence they came. A serious mystery is one still to be known, believed, or not. I only know that date has often proved its synchronistic significance in my world. I remember flying home from the USSR after perhaps my fifth journey there with Jim Hickman. We had just finished another citizen diplomacy mission focused on music, art, and heart exchange. Jim was in excited conversations, on the plane scheming and dreaming of a film he would make with his two other partners. As I looked into the deep blue on our flight, I felt a kind of emptiness inside. And then I remember the knowing came. This would be my last trip to the Soviet Union. And I felt quite alone in the void, not knowing actually what would be next in my life. After landing in Boston, we were escorted out to one of the islands to both thank and visit a primary sponsor who lived there. Arriving late at night, already disoriented from the long airplane ride, to be feeling without a clear dream of the future was an added disorientation. There, in a strange house, hosted by people I had never met, and now would have no purpose really to meet, Jim encouraged me to just hang in there, get some sleep. We would have a breakfast meeting and then be off back to California. And yet sleep 
was not accessible. I could not shake the restlessness, a kind of deep anxiety I felt in my body, my very being in a shake. I remember the rattle that seems to come for some before death, struggle for life. For me, a struggle for a vision, just even some picture of my future. If not the path of citizen diplomacy that I'd given myself to these past years, then what? No peace, no home without the dream. I remember getting up in the dark and leaving the house, the place of so-called comfort, and wandering out through a field. I walked slowly as I really had no idea where we had landed or what was around us. I only sensed that we were not so far from the sea, and that was where I wanted to be. As dawn came within the hour, I found myself soon at the shoreline in a small bay. There at the water's edge, I broke down in tears. Sobs actually came, lasting longer than minutes. I lay down and let go. I had no story. In a way, perhaps, I was free of story. When Jim asked later upon my return what was up, I could only name an overwhelming grief, if any naming at all was real or close to what had just happened. He did his best to pull me together, asking that we just show up for breakfast without that story I just shared for sure, and then we would be off. Two hours later, we were dropped off at the small local airport. As we entered the building, I'll never forget the newspaper rack where the morning papers were featured. Large headlines read, A pod of 50-plus dolphins stranded at dawn. No evidence why. Most had died. The place was about a mile down the beach from where I had been called. It is their way. When one dolphin is sick and heads to shore, many times the whole pod will follow. It was July 23rd, and I couldn't help but remember the legend, the mystery in it all. Some months later, after completing my part of the work around the exchanges, around Ojai, around our relationship, I headed for Hawaii. I knew Jim was headed in a direction of business in the USSR, and that was not mine to travel that. I did my best in our relationship, then to commit to love, to support each other's paths and change the form of our partnership. The journey to the Big Island of Hawaii on my own was just the medicine I needed. Joan Ocean, who I had invited years before to Orkananda, had, after one close encounter with a whale there, devoted her life to swimming with them, to swimming with dolphins and whales here in Hawaii every day. She gladly offered me a room in her house, right on another bay, Keala Kakua. I brought along a book, How We Die, 
since the subject continued to occupy my heart-mind, not only since my early childhood experiences, but truly ever since. The more recent close heart encounter with the stranded dolphins lured me into deeper waters. It was dawn again, and I was reading a sector in the book on breath, how breath is at the center of being, how and when it begins to change as death approaches. It was then I heard the loudest breath I ever remember, and it was right outside my window. That was not a dolphin I knew. As I had swam with them many times, that was clearly a whale. I was on the stairs in minutes. Without missing a beat or thinking it through, I was in my suit and there meeting Joan and Jean-Luc. Without so much as an exchange of words, we crossed the lawn and gently slid into the water. Humpbacks, three of them, then four, one baby, all within yards of our shore. The sun was just coming up. No one else was around, and we had an hour plus to simply float and be with them. No fear. No reactions, no actions, no drama, just trust and love. It was that encounter that gave me the faith, the energy, the dream I needed to carry on. When later we came to shore, we had few words again to share. I mainly remember laughing, kind of a rush all at once, the kind that can come when making love, something I had not done for far too long, what some would name hysterical laughter, along with tears, what some would name crying. Now, so many years later, it all makes me smile as I write, high up in the desert mountains where I say I live, feeling at times like a stranded whale. Some memories are essential to revisit. Not unlike back then returning from Russia, I have a sense that my relationship with this place, this ceremony, this mountain, is headed for a big change. An easier one, perhaps, on some level, as I have been preparing for some time. Even saying out loud that this reunion ceremony may be my last one. Not that I will physically die, although of course that's always a possibility. More so, it's a time to change seats, to step to the side as an older in the circle, to put forward the younger ones we have trained as guides. It is no mistake, though not planned, that four guides have asked to be participants in this ceremony this year, along with four virgins and two olders. It is the community I have dreamed where any and all are willing to be leaders or followers, where we together come to this mountain to pray. Another love story of people, place, and planet. Another action in prayer for these times.
in here in preparation for their arrival, I refine and revisit my own prayer. I confirm my faith in the path of the heart. That is truly all or everything or something I have to offer. No huge talents, grand intelligence or theories, wisdom, no techniques or even tools for trade. Both pre and post doom, no answers more than what I have learned to live since leaving behind the story that I was given to live by my family and culture. I have opened to the one I discover as I go, certainly influenced by my gender, race, class, family, privilege, body, heart, and mind. Yet mostly I feel fed by my soul. Emergence, some call it today. At least that's been my intention, my prayer, where I have given my attention to listen for that voice, that song, that feeling, and act from there. From there, perhaps, just perhaps, we come closer to a truer and more loving world, which not only I, but many, if not all, want to live in. Liberated from the old story, maybe I am somewhat a contribution to the new. Close friends with death, I return to my breath and listen for the next step. In a few days, we will all return to fast for four on this mountain with a group of ten. It will be July 23rd once again. And as Raji says, may we surrender and be used well.